like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey everyone, it's Sophia and welcome back to this very special two-part work in progress. Today's guest is Jason Isaacs, a remarkable actor, philanthropist, and someone who makes me laugh every day at work. And we had so much to talk about that today you are listening to part two of our chat. We're going to find out more about his life, his career, and his incredible work right here, right now. I am curious about the journey from drama school, because, you you know, you mentioned that in college... And it's always so easy to look back, right, and have perspective. But you talk about how it is so common that people drink to excess in school. In Britain, I think probably more than Oh, my God, in the U.S. Yeah. too? It's right. it's insane. I don't know what it's like in Britain, but I know that you know at what? home I it's... already had it. I already had it from my teens. What do you mean? I discovered dr- uh, drink first and then drugs. And As I would teen. do it a lot with my friends. I would do. I would get high. I would do pills with a bunch of stuff. And then they would go home and I carry on doing it. I just, I liked it more than other people. I wanted it not to stop. So by the time I got to college, it was already a thing. It wasn't really to do with the atmosphere or culture. It was me. I brought it. I don't have anything against drugs, drink, gambling, sex, whatever it is that people do to excess. I already was thrilled to go somewhere where there was no adult supervision and I could just do the things I wanted to do all day, every single day and all night. Mm. And, uh, and it didn't hold me back because at that age... I was a volcano of energy and creativity and um, and I was really smart. I don't say that in a, in a kind of boasting way because I've melted most of those brain cells. I'm not anymore. Uh, not and I just, I had so much potential that it, it didn't really hamstring me. I could still get so much done. Uh, it ground me down over the years. But what, you know, it was apparent to me even then and to my friends who all did it to excess because that's what we did, that when they stopped at night, 
I would carry on. So you knew even then that yeah. something was different yeah. for your brain chemistry. Yeah, I, I, I didn't know. Uh, possibly one of the reasons I acted so much and then decided to go to drama school and become an actor is because uh, unconsciously, it's a profession in which no one cares. You can take as many drugs as you like or drink as much as you want. If you turn up and do your job, and if the jobs go well and you get nice reviews or good box office, it doesn't matter. I've been around the most extraordinary excess on, on sets and on stage as well. Really? So no one cared. I worked forever out of my mind. And, uh, really? Yeah, and got fabulous reviews and got great jobs. And no one minds. Wow. Now, you can't do that as a lawyer. Well, no, but you know. but to be honest, you can't really do that as an actor either. How do you, as the person in the fog of addiction, mm. say now something's wrong? Well, it was I've a, gone too far. First of all, I have a partner who you've met who has been with me right from drama school. Uh, she, it was quite clear that I didn't, you know, looking in her as a mirror that something was wrong. But you know, when there's somebody else witnessing your behavior, you know there's something wrong. Right. Um, but when I, you know, when those things that I could do easily became harder and then became impossible, and I couldn't remember the beginning of a sentence by the middle, mm -hmm. when I could never remember anybody's name ever, people I'd spent lots of time with, people I'd worked with, I could always remember lines. I could always do the scenes. I could always be in the moment. Mm -hmm. But when I uh, would be incredibly social and fabulous, but Emma would know what I really wanted, what I really craved, what I would, would manipulate things towards would be getting home and being on a lying down in as close to a coma as I could make myself. That's the state I really aspired to. Mm. Albeit that I did many other things many times. What I really want to do is be away. And mostly, I think those things are kind of outward. On an, uh, on the inside, um, everything is warped. You just don't care about people, mm. yourself. You don't love anyone. You don't, you know, uh, all of... There is no normal thought. There is no normal inner dialogue. It's not... Right. It's not like those people go, yeah, I know, I drink too much at the weekends. I was never, it, it, there are so many analogies that don't quite work, but um, I felt like I kept the world deliberately out of focus for nearly 20 years. And when it started to get sharp ever, I was terrified and needed as quickly as possible to make it out of focus again. Mm. Uh, and now it's been in focus for 20 odd years and I cannot believe that was my life. Yeah. I can't believe the opportunities I missed to connect with wonderful people because I only ever sought out other people like me who wanted to take a lot of drugs. I thought they were the cool people. They were the nice people. They were the, they were the only people who saw the world the way it was. So how do you begin to climb that mountain, especially after, I, don't, I hesitate to even call it a habit, your, your life was fuzzy. Yeah, my fuzzy. life was that, yeah, so always. How, how do you begin? Because I imagine there are people who might know this about themselves or who might have family dealing with sure. this and they say, I don't know where to begin. How do you start? Well, I'll tell you where it didn't start. It didn't start with me because uh, I, all the millions of times I tried to get a handle on it, every Sunday night or every birthday or these mm -hmm. landmarks, New Year's Eve, New Year's or Year's when Eve. it gets to that, you know, important day and date that's when i'll or i'm going to cut back and just do things after six o'clock i knew of myself having failed at those things so many times it just wasn't going to happen so uh we don't take up the whole podcast with it but i i needed help i needed to go outside myself and it was difficult because mm. i'm smart and articulate and i'd even lent money to friends to go to rehab and remember thinking i have a problem that is so many billions of times worse than yours how dare you go to rehab mm. you dilettante um <laughs> so uh yeah, the short version is the 12-step program. That's, you know, I, I needed to go somewhere else to these rooms that I thought I'd come across before. I thought were full of tragic losers. 
And if I ever found myself there, I was going to shoot myself. And uh, and I went there and I found my people. In fact, oddly, uh, can I do this without breaking anonymity? I think I can. I was on the Patriot and um, I heard somebody say, oh, I'm an alcoholic. And I went, and I had been going to 12-step meetings and doing the program for a little bit. And I whispered, so am I. And they said, well, let's let's put it on the call sheet. Let's see if there's any other people. Let's have a meeting. And I went, no, 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 don't. And I said, why? And they said, well, just put it on the call sheet. If anyone turns up, they turn up. I went, no, I'm not going to come. And I was mortified that anybody on this set might find out that I no longer took drugs and drank, even though for decades I've been clearly this man who had a terrible drug problem. But for some reason, that, that stuck with me. And that's one of the reasons it's anonymous, because it makes people, you know, people will be fearful of identifying themselves. Mm. Anyway, there was this thing on the call sheet saying, come, you know, to a meeting in the, in the holiday inn. And I put my baseball cap and sunglasses on. And I sneaked around the back entrance the whole day. And, and one of the reasons I didn't want people to know on the set is because there were a bunch of really cool people I was friendly with. And I liked them. And I, you know, I liked the social atmosphere of the set. And I just want to have this label on me, this cult label. Mm. And I went into the conference room the whole day. And, and all of the cool people were there. <laughs> all the people who I was worried would find out. They were all there in the room. And they became my people for the duration of the shoot. Um, so yeah, without going, you know, I could talk about it forever. One of the reasons, the other reasons it's anonymous is twofold. One is to stop people being intimidated. The other is that no person should ever say, oh, I do this thing, because when they fall from grace, it'll look like the program doesn't work. The program works. Individuals are idiots and get things wrong and are not. So I am no kind of spokesperson for anything. I don't do anything right or consistently, but that's what saved me. And that's what gave me a life back. And that's why Emma agreed to marry me and have children with me, because she wasn't going to marry a drug addict, you know. Mm. So that if anyone's listening and they have a problem, it just works. And it's the, uh, I don't know, I don't want to sound like a cult figure saying it's the only thing that works, but mm -hmm. it's pretty much uh, the thing that will work for you if you lean into it. And I can't recommend it highly enough. I love that. It's really interesting. I have another friend who, it was a struggle for him to get sober. And a lot of us, sure. you know, did everything we could for the multiple times, you know, that it, was a trial and error until the trial worked. Yeah, yeah. And he's also an artist like us, and he says, God, he's very self-deprecating like you, and he just says, God, what an insufferable son of a bitch I was. Oh. I thought I was so interesting because yeah. I was this drunk, messy artist. He goes, I'm such a better actor because I'm sober and smart. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, I, thought, I just thought I mean, that it's, was it's, so... It's so ununique. Cool. I've heard it so many times, but you know, I thought I was in my madness, the kind of, you know, a, a megalomaniac with an inferiority complex, they say that addicts mm. are, but I, some version of myself was a genius who was only doing this to keep it fair for the rest of mankind. <laughs> because once I <laughs> took, you know, once I took the brakes off, Jesus, Watch my, out, world. which area would I not excel in, you know? And the answer is none. <laughs> Because I was just a slightly dull old man, you know, oh who uh, God, had burnt out his brain cells. But uh, it's that. It's actually part of the scary thing about getting sober is going, I'm just going to be ordinary and that's going to have to be enough. Mm. I can't be, you know, I, I didn't die young enough to leave the good looking corpse. I wasn't dead yet. Oh, I was annoyed. On. There were numbers of times I go upstairs and think, I hope I don't come down in the morning. But I certainly didn't want to kill myself. I just wanted it to be over. And then when I knew I, <laughs> I wasn't even young enough for people to go, he had so much potential. <laughs> like that time <laughs> had long crazy. gone, you know. Oh anyway. my God. So I, I can't quite get this image out of my head. You painted me such a beautiful picture talking about how you didn't want it to get sharp, so you kept it fuzzy for a mm. long time. What was it like for things to get 
sharp. How, how is it for you internally as the world begins to come into focus? Well, first of all, it's, you asked me to remember what it was like when I first was over 23 well, years ago now. Well, I mean, it was, you think about I remember it this, I remember Emma going, okay, finally we can have a, you know, buy a house, have a baby and stuff. And, and me saying, I've just met you. I just, I, we have to start dating again. She, she, what the fuck are you talking about? We lived together, we bought a house together, you know, no, we lived in a flat together. And I said, I know, but I like, you've never known me. I've never known me. We have to start from scratch. Starting from scratch took two weeks, you know, whatever. But because maybe I was not that different. I don't know, maybe I was. I think I was that different because of how I felt. I do remember feeling, uh, there was a day I walked down the stairs to my flat in West Hampstead and I stopped halfway down the stairs and I had this realization that if everyone I die, everyone I knew died, it wouldn't bother me. It just wouldn't bother me at all. And it was when I was using, and I just thought, because then I could sit in a room and take drugs all day, and people would go, I know, but you heard what happened to him, didn't you? Everybody he knew was in, everyone knew was in that coach that drove off the cliff. <laughs> and, um, and thinking that about myself, and then at the time rationalizing, going, I think everyone's like that. People are fooling themselves. There's no real human connection, no real love. There's no real contact. Everybody is ultimately this island. And then being sober and going, oh my God, I love people so much. I love my life so uh. much. And then having these children where it just explode your heart into a million pieces. Um, so what is it like? It's, you know, uh, I don't, when we see things written about in our world, in drama, it's always people going, oh, struggle with picking up a drink. And it's nonsense. It's just that people who uh, drink a lot and drug addicts and, and or are kind of addicted to other things, just have fucked up ways of thinking. And and it's, you know, I still am, uh, I don't think I'm normal. I think, you know, I don't think anybody's normal, but I think in the people in our business, the abnormal are drawn to it more. And uh, so what is it like? It's like everyone else's life. It's life on life terms. Life is not easy, but you ex experience love, hate, fear, jealousy, anxiety. And, and uh, the difference with addicts and alcoholics is they replay those things over and over again. Right. We're going to get in the shower and, you know, we'll spend hours having conversations with the person they're never going to see again or that they haven't seen for 10 years. I do that. You know, well, then, then, then we should have a conversation off mic. But anyway, uh, I do think that we do that more mm. uh, or have done that more. But really the point of the, you know, program of 12 steps, again, I just, I'm not a representative of it. And people, there are no leaders or no spokespeople. Uh, uh, if you need it, it's fantastic in there for you. But as I understand it, or as it's been explained to me, you recover from it. Like you do these things mm -hmm. and then you've got rid of a bunch of the crap from the back of you and you think differently, you behave differently. Yeah. So I don't struggle with who I am. I'm not that person all the time. I'm a different person. Yeah. I've grown and changed and there's some of it left and it's there lurking. Should I let it to sure. take, but actually... What's life like? It's like your life. It's like anyone else's life. But what strikes me is that you've done the work. By working the program, you've done the work and you've created new neural pathways. Hopefully, so you don't yeah. fire the, the mental highway that ran you into a near coma. You fire a new mental highway that runs you into calling Emma or one of your daughters it's a different, sure. it's oh, look, a different I'm, thing. I'm 58 years old. I've lived a lot of life. I've seen a lot of things. I still sometimes have to be told to go to bed or stop uh, eating. Me too. Stop eating. Me too. You know, stuff like that, Maybe which is outrageous at my age that, that those things happen. Um, uh, and I don't know. These labels of addict, alcoholic, you know, a lot of people struggle with that. Some people don't, though. 
Mm. And I'm always amazed by them. The people who have the one glass of wine and leave the bottle, or the people who have half a slice of cake or something. I just, mm. it boggles my mind, but I'm just not made like that. Mm. You know what I find to be lovely when you say something like how you are or are not made? I loved, and you said you, you know, you told a story in the press about me. I got to do some bragging about you in the press interviews for our show. And same thing. Oh, well, you know, what is Jason Isaacs like? <laughs> and we were talking about the dynamics between Griff and Sam, uh, our characters on the show for everyone at home. And I just said, sometimes it's the sweetest, you know, because Jason's in his Griff accent at work, the like, long midwestern detroit mm. like we don't say attack we say attack mm. like the things that i've learned from your dialect coach and he, there's been more than once when you've looked at me and gone but i don't want to say this to you <laughs> <laughs> and it's so yeah, no, sweet it because i see you as a father to your daughters going what man would ever speak to his daughters this way and it's i just i love it it's the thing i really love about you it's fun I do. I do. I, I mean, some of this discussion has been about not feeling like I had a place in the world. Uh, and a lot of people feel like that. I had my children. And it was the first time I thought, okay, so one, in a good way, one foot is nailed to the floor. This mm. is where I belong. This I will always be and have to be a father. Mm. That doesn't mean that everyone naturally is a good parent, as we both know. But uh, for me, I went, why did I wait so long? I mean, Emma and I, both of us, like, why did we wait so long? This is what we were born to do. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that we've done it particularly well. Time will tell, but uh, it was what I'd been searching for for a long time, just to be to be a parent. I do struggle with. I mean, I you know, I play your father in the show, and sometimes he's a total fuckhead. And uh, <laughs> although there is a part of me, you know, my wife has done most of the mothering because I've been, uh, you know, all away a lot, or we travelled together a lot when they were a little bit less uh, than been older. And uh, so, really, I lost my vote. Uh, in, any, in anything in the family and you know when I go well, I think we should do this for the kids she goes yeah okay well we're not doing that um, <laughs> some part of me I think would have been stricter like Griff some part of me would have wanted them to experience hitting the sides of the rails to, to build grit you know whatever that is uh, um, and my wife can't bear for them to be in any way distressed uh, either of our girls and they're great people they really are but I think left to my own devices had I been a single dad I would have let them made them even or let them suffer more and been tougher with them uh, i don't think i would have been right necessarily I, we'll never know until we you know do a double blind placebo test with a bunch of twins but uh so some part of me is getting to live out through griff what i didn't get to do at home mm. well, i never will interesting how do you make decisions like that when you think about characters mm. you have obviously endless amounts of fascinating observations for griff for the dynamic of Griff and Sam, for what's going on in the hospital, you've played so many fascinating characters and of all walks of life. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. I'm How? old. I'm old. I've been working decades no, longer than you. No, but plenty of people your age haven't had a career characters. like yours. No, that's also, you've been in long-running TV series. I've done lots and lots and lots of jobs. I've never been long-running. So you're right. I've played hundreds of characters. It's so cool. If any of my series had gone to nine seasons, <laughs> I wouldn't have had the opportunity. <laughs> but, <laughs> but how do you decide? You know, what, what was it when you read this script that you said, yep, that's the next one. That's the one I want to do. I think it was partly what we're talking about. You know, I'm a dad of, of uh, these girls who are coming into their power. 
they already think that I'm an idiot and everything I say is wrong and uh, they can navigate the world better. And I, I'm not entirely convinced that they're wrong in some areas, at least. Uh, we were recently all the way on holiday and we got all got COVID together and had to isolate. And I stepped up and did manage to get us an isolation apartment so we didn't have to go into the barracks uh, where we were. And um, I saw just for a split second, they looked at me and went, oh, dad can do some stuff. But they normally don't think dad can do anything. <laughs> and uh, I was interested in coming into this women-only environment where you were the lead. I, I've been the lead in most shows that I've done, you know, mm -hmm. and, and uh, I'm older. And uh, it's about you. And it's a, the story is about a young woman being in her power. And it's run by, to me, young women. I'm sure that, I don't know if Katie and Jenny would object to that label, probably not, but younger women than me uh, who are in their power and are running big, uh, you know, media companies and, and running a big show. And I was curious what that would be like. I wondered if it would be, as it has turned out to be, uh, a much more supportive environment, a much less toxic environment. You know, you had some very un difficult, challenging experiences on TV shows before. So did I. Uh, mm -hmm. Not in the same way, because I wasn't a young woman, but some very difficult people I've worked with in the past. Mm -hmm. um, some lovely ones too. I, 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 the last couple of times I did television series on the OA and on um, mm -hmm. Dig and stuff, I really fell in love with the people I was working with. But I've worked with some very toxic people and I just looked at this and I thought, um, it has a positive feel to it. It's from some people who want to put something positive in the world and explore families and love and and. And that there's a lot of medical people in my family. And they lead lives of service. You know, for all that they may be difficult with each other, for all mm -hmm. that me, our characters, difficult with each other, um, they save people's lives every day. They've, they've dedicated their life to saving lives. Mm -hmm. Whether they have a good or bad bedside manner, whether it's because they're more comfortable with organs than they are with people or something, you know, they, they just, it was a world of something very positive to dive into, run by positive people. Yeah. Um, that I thought would be interesting. Plus I'd done indie movie, indie movie after indie movie, lots of them, and I love doing them, and I love the stories they tell. They're, they're complicated, nuanced stories that reach a tiny audience, if any. Mm. I've, I've done many movies that don't come out. My experience has been great, because I love walking in other people's shoes yeah. and minds, but um, this is broad entertainment to reach you know millions of people watch our stories. And... Uh, I kind of, I wanted, I, there's that too. That element is in there that you get to tell a story and you know that people watching it. And, you know, it's, in some ways it cycles, circles back to what we were talking about before that, you know, in the world post-Trump and post-fact, uh, sometimes I think it's fiction now that will most touch and affect people, most open their hearts, mm. most make them amenable to human contact or to seeing other people not as the enemy but just as other people. I think that fiction softens people up in ways that um, that news and current affairs maybe no longer has the power to do. Yeah. Yeah, because they don't have a preconceived notion of what it is. It it doesn't necessarily... And it's outside themselves. Yes. So they can say something about this person not realizing that it actually applies to them or to their feud with their sister or boss or whatever it is. Yeah. Is it always a sort of analysis of the times and and what you might want to experience or explore in a particular time that leads you to making a choice for a part? God, I wish I had a, a sensible answer for it. You know, I know that, you know, or it's a the, gut the Will Smith, the, there is, he was do one comedy sci-fi movie and one for the Oscars and one comedy sci-fi, one for the, like, I have no pattern uh, at all for anything. Me neither. <laughs> uh, and I, I, when I go, oh, this is time for me to go back on stage. 
uh, I end up doing a television series. When I go, it's time to do a television series, I end up doing a little film. And uh, it's just something. I don't know. And it's very often inconvenient. I'm in a little film called Mass at the moment, which is really beautiful and had phenomenal response. And uh, I read it and went, oh, I have to do this. It was incredibly inconvenient. I was on the other side of the world in Australia doing a film. I hadn't seen my family. There was no money. I had to fly myself in. It was probably not going to get finished. It, no one was going to see it. And I went, but it's brilliant. I want to bring those words to life. I want to bring that human being to life. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a misconception. I don't know if you get it. it. You do get it. I know I've seen it online. When people thank you for your work, you know, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. It's completely selfish for me acting, you know, in many, many ways. I want to be in someone else's heart and mind and uh, trying to persuade someone else of something. Like I, I want to be in the story. I want to be living that life. And uh, if people see it and get something from it, that's great. And I, and I, but in the moment of doing it, maybe it's in the moment of doing it, I'm not thinking about an audience or what they get from it or not. I just want to be seeing what it's like. I, I'm frustrated. I resent the fact we have to have just the one life. I resent that. I love my wife. I've been with her for 34 years. I imagine that we will be together forever. But I also want to have a billion other lives and partners and sexuality. So I want to experience life with 20 kids and no kids. I want to be, you know, I want to be all the people that I've played and yeah. many more. Anyway, there's no, the point, the answer is there is no pattern. This didn't make any sense going to Toronto, possibly for nine months at a time. Mm -hmm. That's not, it's not a great thing for me to do in my life. Uh, I don't need to do that financially. I'm lucky I, the work does come in to do other things. That, um, I just fancied it. I don't know, just fancied it. Mm -hmm. Met Katie, knew who you were and thought that looks like fun. Mm -hmm. yeah. I also didn't think about it being a series, by the way, because we did a pilot. And I, I have many friends who, uh, who haven't done TV series like you and I have done, and they get offered a pilot and they go, I don't know, seven years in Vancouver. And I go, it's not seven years, it's three weeks. <laughs> don't think about it. Most things don't go. Most things aren't picked up. Most things don't run past the first season. Don't Just think, do you want to go and do this job? And I thought, I fancy going for three weeks. Little did I know that we'd still be making the pilot two years later. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's pretty incredible. I love that though, the the wanting to be something. I've read so many great scripts that I've really enjoyed, but I know I either see the movie. I it's like when people describe out of body near death right, experiences right. and they're up in the corner watching themselves in the room. That's how I see a script, or I don't. And if I don't see it, sure. Like I'm watching my life. There's no way I'm going to be able to. Sometimes I read it. something I think it's great, and I picture another actor in it. Yeah, me too. And I go, <laughs> I shouldn't take this job. I think that's Ed Norton or whoever the hell you know. I think that's Christopher yeah. Walker, whatever. I just don't. I don't see me doing it, and it's not. I don't have any criticism of the piece at all. That's the other thing. And say, why did I do it? I thought Katie was great. I thought her writing was great. I thought she, you know, the last television series I did was uh, Star Trek, I think, wasn't it? Or the OA, which one did I? I can't remember which one I did that first. Either way, so different. Well, you finished the OA before we started the pilot in 2020. 
Yeah, because okay. when we first met, I said, hi, Jason, it's so nice to meet you. I have to emotionally leave the room for five minutes and then I'll be right back. And in this moment, <laughs> while emotionally I'm outside the door, I'll be standing in front of you fangirling and talking to you about how the OA is one of the most important oh, pieces okay. of television that I've ever seen. And I need to talk to you all about it. And I need to know <laughs> what it was like to play Hap. And we need to, we need to discuss the writing. And as soon as I can stop talking about this, I promise I'll never bring it up again. No, I <laughs> That's how we first met. I could met. talk about that forever. So anyway, oh. I just... This was such a different world. Katie writes broad entertainment to access, you know, that everybody should have access to. You know, she wants to write something to reach lots of people. Yeah. Sal and Britt write a very specific, very you know, uh, a very different kind of story. For, well, I can't imagine there's a single viewer as an overlap for Good Sam between the OA and, and they're me. both. Well, you and me <laughs> and the people who follow us, but but um, I just thought, God, that's not like anything I've done forever. Yeah, uh, and and what a she just seemed great. Sometimes she just liked people. I mean, her writing was great, and yes. she seemed great. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's, yeah, there's a story I shouldn't tell on Mike about how great she is. There was a time I will tell it, but I'll try and be discreet about it. There was a time I was badgering her when we were filming because I there was an old Yiddish word to nidder. I was niddering her. It's like poking someone and poking them and poking them. I was going, "Can we change this? Can we do this?" And she was always going, "Yeah, no, this, yes, no. How about this? Let's try that instead." And I did it. I did it. Did it. And then at some point. Um, I thought she needed to sit down and she was a bit hot in the studio and, and, and she got flushed. And she said, no, okay, do that. And she gave me an answer, a generous answer. And then I realized she got flushed because I was bulldozing her. It was me that brought that on. And even in this moment, when I'd given someone a physical reaction to me, she was so generous and loving, 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 whatever that word is. Uh, and I thought, loving. yeah, I thought, God, that's a special person, and I should learn to shut the fuck up when I see those signs as well. Mm. It was really, uh, it was a magical moment for me. I'm sure she experienced it very differently, but for me, I thought, I don't know that I've ever met anybody like that. She's incredible. Yeah. Listen, I think it's kind of amazing. I think the best people in the world have days where they don't see everything going on around them. You can't be everything all the time. And I, I think when you're in healthy relationship with people, you have experiences where they push you to grow, you push them to grow. Everybody learns, gets better, gets kinder, gets braver. And that's what this job feels like to me. And that kind of support uh, that exists among all of us, by the way, on mm. good days and intense days and long days, it's been really good, I think, for everyone because you know, if, if that's the worst interaction you've ever had on a set where you're working 100 hours a week. Oh, no, I've had, I mean, I've no, worked no, around I'm terrible saying, people. But yeah, I'm yeah, saying, yeah, no, I'm saying on great. this one, I'm saying on this one, yeah, yeah. on a set being our set, it's revolutionary compared to some of the shit we've all been through yeah, on yeah, other sets, no, you know? True. I don't know, I was just thinking, when I'm looking at you acting this and knowing your history of all the series you've been in, the long-running series you've been in, and how different the things I've done is, and I'm wondering if the, is it a different instinct that drew us towards it or that we want from acting is it you know is it you want to be in a long-running series you have been you set this up you're at the center of it and uh i will be if it is and that'll be great and if it isn't there'll be something else and i'll do other things because i always imagined i, I you know i like chinese food because there's 12 dishes on the table yeah, i don't like the same thing over and over again i really like all the people working with and i just take it day by day but um we have such different expectations uh in this it's well, interesting. You know what it is? I think I'm, my duality is both of those things. 
I, I want to eat Chinese every night because I want to eat 12 things and I always want to order food as a group so we can get as many things on the menu as possible. But I could eat the same food every night right, and right. get the whole menu. I, I love uh, new experience, but I love familiarity. And I think because I'm a very communal animal by nature, I love the idea of building a community. Like my greatest sure. fantasy is to live on a commune with all of my best friends. I would love nothing more. And so that's the other series. So I, I'm, oh. I think I might be presenting a series about beliefs soon, or what things that are aren't believable. But the other one I wanted to do that I, I haven't really pitched is people are setting up alternative ways of living I know. at the moment. I'm fascinated. And I'm fascinated by it because maybe this is all falling apart. You know, the unicorns, the billionaires have got their retreats in New Zealand, but they're five stories below the ground, like the Bond villain <laughs> lairs with generators and weapons and food and stuff. But for the rest of us, yeah. if society falls apart, I mean, I'll what be too old. Do? I'll be the first against the wall probably. But uh, You guys can come over. I have a garden. Thanks very much. <laughs> uh, but how will we live? Why? Because I don't know about you, but I thought when the pandemic started, I thought... I'm a bit of a catastrophist anyway. And I thought, okay, it's over. The way we've all been living is over. The, you know, uh, what's going to emerge after the kind of Mad Max waste? Uh, something better. Or at least when every country is just printing money to give to people to stay at home, the old economies just can't possibly stand it. What's going to happen? Is someone going to step up? Are we going to get another generation of revolutionaries to rip things up and start again in a way that's fairer and better? And I know I'll suffer because I've done all right and I've got some savings and I, you know, own a house and stuff, but that'll be okay in the long run because the world could do with massive shaking up. And uh, it didn't happen. And I was a little bit, you know, relieved for myself selfishly, but disappointed. I feel like giant change will have to come. One it, thing you can will. be sure of is change. Yeah, it will. But I think that's part of why I love to lean into things that allow for constant discovery you know we get a new script every week every day is different mm. but we get to be together and i love that and it's why you know even in some environments that were not what they should have been i really leaned into the togetherness with the people yeah. i loved and tried to navigate around what was not good and there was a lot of just perspective on that in the four years that I wasn't doing a regular series, that I was mm. doing independent film after independent right. film and going and working on a Netflix show here and a Hulu show there, doing the smaller streamer stuff. And I loved it. But I did crave, I craved my daily dose sure. of... The family. We, we, you create a family, family. every time you yeah. go somewhere. I think that might be... So much for this is pop psychology. It might be just complete bullshit. But I think uh, much as I, you know love whatever that word is the members of my family uh i wanted a different family you know like you find a family every time you do a play yeah. or every time you do a tv series well, you, how lucky you, find, you got a new family most people only get one yeah yeah. and I we agree. get bunches well that's the other thing you know when We're people so come and visit a set if they're young they often go i want to be in an environment like that because the reason the office was a successful tv show in england and america is everyone knows what it's like to be stuck at work <laughs> yeah. not enjoying yourself with people you with don't like <laughs> and that's just not what film sets are like tv sets are like they're not mm -hmm. they're they're people who are actually enjoying themselves do you ever wonder if it's us more my wife said to me emma once said to me i said why don't you come to the set more you never come to the set when we were living in the states and she went you don't see it it's like the court of Louis the Fourteenth. Everyone laughs at your jokes. They bring you tea. You're having a great time. They you pick up your clothes, and, and I go, "No, I see it. I like it. It's great." <laughs> it's, 
Do you wonder sometimes whether we're having a much better time than the other people? I think I have observed that to be true on some sets, and I don't like it. Yeah. I really dislike a hierarchy. Uh, the thing that makes me angrier than anything is when someone says the words above the line to me. Right. And for the people listening at home, above the line essentially means all the actors and producers, and they quote unquote call below the line the crew. It makes me so fucking angry. I, even thinking about it now, I'm, I, I hear my voice getting lower because I'm mad. And for me, truer than true, that none of what I do or you do or any of the people who go and sell the show, we don't do what we do without our crew. And it's why whenever a set is my set, it's crew first. Mm -hmm. I'm at safety meetings. I'm making sure people know they're heard. I'm making sure people know that they don't need to figure out who to talk to if they have a problem, they come talk to me about it. It's why I like to bring in surprises and Christmas glasses and, you know, get people when we can, when we don't get shushed for it, you know, playing music in between things when we're walking into set. Like, I want people to feel joy. It's why I shoot the shit with the camera guys all day. I, I love the people we work with and I love going to work mm -hmm. because I see how much fun they're all having. Yeah, I know. Well, that's well, my, my version of it. My definition of it is I feel free to crack any crappy joke I want anytime I like, but I want to make sure that the props guy feels free Absolutely. to crack a joke. Or the caterer. You know, they, if they can't, if they're thinking they got to stand there and watch the Jason show, something's gone horribly wrong. Well, no, you know? that's the nightmare. Yeah. What a nightmare that would be. But I will say it is, I think, a pretty consistent nightmare for people who come to visit us at work. Because when you're not a part of the circus and you see how the circus is made, it ruins the magic. It's like someone showing you how to do a magic trick. Mm. No one, I hate to bring it to the folks at home, nobody has a good time when they come to set. No, they have no a good business. time for like the first 25 minutes, maybe the first hour. And then without fail, every single person I've ever seen come to visit a set goes, Wow, so you guys are just going to keep doing this? Like, oh, yeah. Like this for is how long? the same on Harry Potter. Oh, people, yeah. People who come to Harry Potter sets, they beg me, beg me. And I go, sure, no problem, because they were amazingly generous, the producers. They'd lay on an extra production assistant to drive them around in the golf carts. They'd visit oh. all the sets. They'd go to the menagerie. They'd go to the visual effects workshop. They'd come to where we were shooting. They'd meet Dan, Rupert, Emma, Tom. Everyone would say hello to them. They'd get to say cut and action. I mean, it was a really open, lovely set That's all the time. Amazing. And then... They, after a couple of hours, they go, so what, what happens now? And they go, this More happens. We're this. still doing this for the next two weeks. What, this scene at the table? Yeah, right. I, I, again, they, their plan was them to come into work with me. I go, I'm going in at 5 a.m. and go, oh, I'll come later. Or to stay till I go home at night. And then suddenly remember they had a plumber's appointment or their kid had to go to the <laughs> dentist. They get the fuck out of there. Every time. Yeah. It wears off real quick and people just go, wow, so it's just more of this. But, that but thing we love it. That's true, but here's so let's get slightly more general and spiritual <laughs> uh, and maybe pretentious that you love going to work. I, I love going to work when I have done the right thing. Because for me, I can wake up in the morning and feel very sorry for myself or annoyed oh, yeah. at things. And if I don't take care, if it doesn't happen naturally, if I don't care to re-steer things and reset things, I can feel like the world is conspiring against me or that, geez, look at these things that I have to do and what a pain in the ass. And if I can recalibrate by just doing a couple of exercises or even you know, meditation or whatever the hell it is, I can go, I'm so lucky. I can feel grateful and I can, I can 
be concerned with being of service to other people instead of telling other people my woes and hoping that they will feel sorry for me when mm-hmm. actually in the great scheme of things that's seen, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but the difference between a really shitty day and a really great day is always between my ears. It's very rarely to do with anything that happens outside mm-hmm. me. And I'm, I've been aware of that now for quite a long time. And so, uh, which is great because it doesn't mean I always do it or always do it right, but I know that it's in my power. And that's such a gift to know that because I see and I'm around other people who aren't aware that it's their stuff that they could, if they have the right tools, deal with and experience their life completely differently. And it's mm-hmm. such a, it's a, it's a real joy to know that at least if I, I do it imperfectly, but I can do it sometimes and re-steer things. And that's one of the joys that you asked me, this is about three hours ago, what's it like being sober? That's what it's like, that I can... I recognize what's my shit that I can deal with. And if I do it right, I can care more about other people. And that makes me feel great. I love that. feels like a pretty good mantra. Just take care of your shit and care more about other people. Yeah. I mean, that's that, you know, I teach acting sometimes <laughs> irritatingly. Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, or I, I teach acting and I teach directing to directors, like how to talk to actors sometimes as well, which is embarrassing because you'll see how badly I do it in a few weeks and I direct an episode. But but the, all of the things I teach really can be summed up in about two minutes. I stretch it out to a two-hour workshop. But um, it it stems from the best acting I've ever seen happens off camera. When you're off camera or oh, when they turn the camera around, they've done all your coverage and someone else, you, all you're doing is being in the scene and concentrating on the other person. And... Uh, the best director I ever had would just stop a scene in the middle. I go, stop, stop. You're showing me how upset you are. And I go, well, I am. I'm really upset. And he go, no, no, no. You're showing me how upset you are. Change that guy. Make him apologize. Make him love you. Make him stop you. And anytime anyone's stuck on acting or doing their bit where they're angry, I always, if I get to direct them or get to talk to them about it, I go, what do you want from the other person? Not as a general wash, but specifically moment to moment. What do you want them to feel or what do you want them to say or what, what's the inner script you want to write for them? Forget what you're doing. Oh, I'm really, really, you know, I uh, feel sad because my cat died. No, no, you want that person to apologize they didn't lock the front door. So in some ways, I feel like the, you know, what acting is about is what you want from other people and what life should be about when I do it right is what I can give to other people mm. or how much I can hear them or see them. And if when it starts turning into look at me, hear me, see me, feel for me, it's going a bit wrong, says the man who's just talked three hours on the microphone. But <laughs> it's not consistent. <laughs> yeah, but I like that. I really like that. The willingness to listen as an act of showing up is something that I can't possibly overestimate the importance mm. of. You know, if nothing else, when, when I have those days, and I know we all do, and I have those days where I look around and I go, is today going to be the day everybody figures out I have no fucking idea what I'm doing? <laughs> and I'm just really in that panic. No, well, that happened on the first day. That's long ago. Jason. <laughs> don't tell people. Um, we all know yeah. that nobody knows what they're doing. That's right. the great secret actors know that other people don't know and we're okay with. I've shadowed some incredibly powerful men with enormous responsibility. And after two minutes, I've gone, oh, you're just an eight-year-old with a moustache. <laughs> You know, you know a bit more, but you know, sometimes when it's the head of Delta Force, you go, but but mostly everybody's faking it all the time. Yeah. And that's yeah. okay. So we're as everyone's actors afraid. we know that. Everyone's afraid. But I I think to get myself out of 
you know, the the sort of panic that can mm. come with those waves of feelings, I'll just take a deep breath and focus on listening. Mm. Like with with my inner ears, really focus on listening. And it yeah. changes everything for me every time. It's true. Listening listening not being preparing what you're going to say. Yeah. Which which listening can be for me so often. Yeah. You know. That well. gets hard for me at times. Not to feel like I'm preparing what I want to say, where I struggle, perhaps because I'm not a writer, is I know if I don't tell you the thing that what you've said has made me think of, mm-hmm. if three more minutes go by, it'll be gone. Oh, yeah. It's gone. Sure. No, it's a sieve. It's gone. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think I think that's partially to blame because of what we do for a living. Because when you when your brain gets used to memorizing 10 pages a day and then forgetting them so you can memorize 10 pages the next day, I'm like, I don't know what you said five minutes ago. <laughs> Remind me, say the first four words again, and then I can repeat the whole sentence. So this, uh, but what? the the recall is <laughs> oh, no, definitely a little damaged. I, I I give myself the excuse that I melted it away with decades of drug abuse. <laughs> so I don't know, but I do. I found myself uh, in more recent years, fascinated by the power of uh, words, the different words we use. You know, and uh, as someone in a long term couple, we've had some couple counselling along the time, along the way, and. You know, the manner in which you engage with people, mm-hmm. uh, the power of NLP, for instance, neuro-linguistic programming. You know, the, the, uh, for a while, I was fascinated with hypnosis mm-hmm. and wanted to write a script about it. So I went to lots of hypnotists and watched oh, lots of hypnosis it. documentaries. It's extraordinary the difference interacting with people that your vocabulary can make. Mm-hmm. But, yes. you know, and we see it now because so much of our communication is, is written. And people take massive offense at what they their perceived tone they see in a text or email. Oh. And it might not be that way face-to-face because you can hear tone. But even when you're face-to-face, it's the wrong word in an argument or a creative discussion or you know, uh, a falling yeah. out lands in all the wrong ways and sends off all the wrong signals inside someone else's head. So you're talking about you know, listening and whether one's preparing one's answers or not. Um, there are exercises we were shown in couples counseling and other places of active listening or of, uh, I think, what was it called? Imago, where you listen to someone and then you repeat back exactly what it is they've said yes. to you. And invariably you get it wrong because it's not exactly what they yes. said to you. It's your own paraphrase filtered through your own bias, conscious or unconscious. Uh, and it's a really interesting exercise in trying to make sure that you really do hear someone and instead of persuading them why they're wrong, let them know that you've heard them. Uh, and that in itself... Uh, elicits change. Yeah, it doesn't entrench things. It's a uh, kind of amazing, and I, I don't do it. I remember. Is this a tangent? I, don't, I remember being away on a holiday once with Emma, and uh, somebody had left that book in my in the hotel bedroom. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Yeah. you know, much like a lot of the diet books. I think it, you know it's got five pages of ideas, and then someone published it. And went well, we need two hundred, so they flush it out. Um, but essentially, uh, it was saying. Women just need to be heard. Stop trying to tell them how to fix their problem. And men, it's a, I think they call it the DIY committee. Mm. If you come to a man, it's because you're applying to the DIY committee and they need to come up with a solution for you. Yeah. So if you want peace in your relationship, I mean, it's ludicrous generalizations across gender lines, but nonetheless, I tried it for a couple of days, just as a little social experiment. Emma would tell me something that was bothering her and i go, oh gosh, that must be awful. Oh, really, darling? Well, how did that feel? And it worked in the most remarkable way mm-hmm. uh, to create harmony between us. And after the second day, I went, fuck this. I'd st- I'm, I'm from Mars. I don't <laughs> want to be that person. And I reverted. Well, what's interesting, I'll share with you, and for anyone at home, feel free to take it. You know, you talked about 
the whenever it is you guys have been to couples counseling and and we have a coach that we both work with because you know we're both like nerdy lunatics who love data and who are <laughs> obsessed with how to make things function better so we we were like yeah obviously coaching let's do that that'll be fun and hands up anyone at home who's heard of a relationship coach me neither oh my god <laughs> it's like it's it's just it's I, you know, and I'm a big proponent of therapy. I think it's life-saving. But this, I just am like, why does anyone do anything with this? And our coach gave us, it's it's like a protocol she gives to everybody, but she gave us um, purge or problem solve. Right. And it's kind of like the white flag you can throw up right away. But it's it's not, you know, as archaic as that book was, some sort of gendered thing. Everyone wants to be heard. And sometimes we want to be helped. Yeah. More often than not, we want to be heard. But especially when you have two people like Grant and I who are very driven and who love to solve problems, you can immediately go into problem solve. And so she said, you just have to say, you know, like if it were you and I were Emma and I launched into something, you could just say, hold on, is this a purge or a problem solve? Nice. And then you know if it's a purge to say, I'm so sorry, that must be awful for you. And if it's a problem solve, you get to be a Martian and say, I know how to fix it. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it's it's so much fun. And I've given I've given the tip to so many people. I've got friends using it with their parents, friends using it with their spouses. I'm like, I'm telling you, it's three words that'll change your life. It's amazing how simple little exercises mm-hmm. that seem ludicrous and are very easy to make fun so of simple. can change. The way uh, people work, both uh, in the in the homes, also business relationships. Yes, just simple. Let's make sure this is our vocabulary. This is our keyword, and we're all resistant to that stuff. Certainly, when you get to my age, you're like, I'm sorry, and these newfangled ideas, the ludicrous kind of hippie nonsense. But you try them out, and and they invariably work. Like gratitude lists. Yes, they work. They, they shouldn't work. work. It's ludicrous. Okay, but they so work. I'm curious. Because now, now we're entering into the zone where I feel like I want to ask you my favorite question to ask everyone. We're talking about ways to make progress as artists, as significant others, as friends, as humans. So when you think about all the things you've learned from the people you've played, the lives you've inhabited, the families you've had uh, on screen, the family you have in life, the growth of your experience, your growth inside of sobriety, where you are in this moment in your life, looking at all of that stuff you've gleaned and learned from, what would you say right now feels like your current work in progress? Oh, look at you pulling those themes together with the title of your podcast. Um, What is my work in progress? What am I still working on? Um, Well, I'm entering a different phase of life. Like I, I, both in as a parent, you know, it was the center of my life. Uh, my children, you know, uh, they they needed me, us, Emma and I, and yeah. uh, and also they provided the greatest gift, joy, pleasure, entertainment, whatever it is. They no longer need us in the same way. And I, you know, I have a daughter at university. She doesn't need us really. She she wants us. The other one will be gone soon. Um, I'm no longer playing the uh, action hero leads in things. I'm always playing the father, for instance. Mm. So that's an interesting thing, to, to not be at the center of stories um, as I move towards producing and directing and, and writing and all the other, developing and all the other stuff. Um, so my work in progress is to, is to become okay, to become more okay with uh, 
how light my footprint is in the world. You know, I carried, uh, I think, uh, um, guilt for not doing more. My mother was a my mother was a very difficult woman. She's she's dead now, but she was a remarkable woman in many ways. Who should have run a country, but instead ran a family and started lots of charities and did lots and lots and lots of things for charity and got herself arrested lots of times and protested and mm. and uh, she never forgot. Uh, maybe even to the extent of neglecting her family, that the point of life was service and to try and be of use to heal her own scars that she never looked at. So it's a complicated picture. She wasn't Mother mm. Teresa, but but nonetheless, I learned, you know, at her foot from a very early age that the most useful thing you can do in life is be of use to other people mm. and care and listen to other people. And I've done some of it, you know, and I do not every single charity thing I'm asked to do because you, you and I both know you're asked to do millions, but I've picked some charities and I do some things for them. Um, but I have spent quite a lot of my life uh, reading newspapers and engaging with the world thing and never forgetting that, for instance, today, Afghanistan is a failed state, you know, and that literally tens of millions of people yeah. are on the point of starving, M you know, maybe 10 million starving to death uh, if we don't help them soon, that, that Yemen is a failed state, that there are, again, tens of millions of people, displaced people in the world, and that, and thinking that, uh, either uh, and the you know climate change all the other things that can fill one's head with gloom and doom um and i've spent quite a lot of my life thinking i must not be present and enjoy what's going on now it's a it's uh it's a dereliction of my duty as a human being to um uh, if i'm not working often more for other people giving more of my money i've earned away and doing more to help uh, and that there's something obscene about living in the West and uh, living this life where I just give a little bit of money away and do a little bit of charity because I'm a celebrity and, and, and not do more. Um, and so you ask, what's my work in progress? It's, to, it's both to acclimatize myself to this next phase with my wife that we're no longer parents who are hovering over children mm -hmm. uh, and my working life is changing and to both do more and be comfortable with how little it is that I do um, in the world because I can't change it all and I can do more and I think if I do more I'll worry less because I think it's an indulgence it's a it's an indulgence of a would-be you know do good a liberal to to not do enough but to carry it heavily on my conscience as if that is activism it's not activism it's it's piousness it, that's actually virtue inner virtue signaling that phrase that I hate so what are the things I, I, I if by working progress me, what do I want to work on mm -hmm. in my life? The art, yeah, I love telling stories. I think they're important. I think you can tell stories and touch people and help them feel less alone. I help, help them make different choices. Uh, but in terms of the bigger picture of my life, I want to do more for other people and worry about how little I do less. I like it.